the silent stars go by yet in thy dark stream silent the everlasting light of hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight how silently how Well, hey, everyone, welcome to you, wherever you may be joining us from, from uh, one of our campuses, maybe, or online all over the world. We're glad you're with us today. We're starting a new series, which is always fun. I enjoy that a lot. It's called Christmas Playlist, and I'll explain what that's all about in, in just a minute. But uh, it, it, it does have to do with playing some Christmas music. How many of you are like, I know there's some Grinches who are like, ah, I don't want any Christmas music yet. But how many of you are like, I'm all about it. You're, you're ready for Christmas music at all? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the good-hearted people that I like to be around. Good for you, y'all. The other day, I, I saw some kids um, and adults were butchering the words of uh, fairly well-known songs, but you know how you sometimes sing words that you don't, and then you realize later, oh, that wasn't the right words at all? Well, the kids were doing that with Christmas songs, and it was actually kind of funny, and I found some of those, and I thought, well, we'll have some fun with it. I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I'm just going to invite you, you here at all of our campuses, online at home, wherever you are, sing along with me as we butcher some of these actual mistakes that have been made in songs. Let's go. Here's a couple of them. Sing it with me now. Let's see. Here we go. Ready? Deck the halls with Buddy Holly. Now, some of you, old, some of you young kids, you have no idea who Buddy Holly is, but ask your parents. All right, ready? Here we go. Ready? We three kings of porridge and tar. That's, that's a different kind of gift. All right. What else? We got a couple more here. Let's see. What's next? Ready? Ready? Here we go. Later on, we'll perspire as we dream by the fire. Nice sweaty Christmas for you. There you go. Oh, here's a good one. Okay, ready? The last part is Silent Night. Ready? So gently now. Sleep in heavenly peas and beans and greens and parrots and potatoes. And Okay. And a couple more. I think this is Rudolph. Ready? All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him. Isn't Olive such a jerk? Okay, and then the last one. Ready? And you'll go down in Listerine. There you go. 
also the young people, ask your parents what Listerine used to be. All right, that's fun. It's just, uh, um, you know, one of those things where there, so often we have songs that we sing, we, we maybe blow right by some of the words without even really thinking about what's there. And I think that's particularly true of some of, not just, you know, some of these fun kind of Christmas songs, but I think it's particularly true of like the old school classic Christmas carols. I, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that I think some of, the, some of us have probably sung these songs hundreds of times. And, and yet, I, sometimes when I just slow down and look at each line a little more closely, I realize, oh my goodness, it's just packed with so much rich and robust biblical truth. And can I just point out, there's a big difference when it comes to Christmas music between Rudolph and Frosty and I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. I love all that. Bring it on. But there is something important about the old carols that actually are rich with scriptural truth and which point us as a, like a gold mine to the whole reason for what Christmas is about, and I think this year we might need that more than ever. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's on your playlist, okay? And what we're talking about is not just what you put into your, you know, in, into your little device that you're going to plug into your head and actually listen to, although that's important, but more in a figurative way. What, what are the messages in your head? What are the, what's the feed that you're inviting into your mind and your heart? What are you filling yourself with? What, what are we consuming? Because whatever we consume has a way of consuming us, doesn't it? And, and so we need to ask this question. I'm talking to more and more people who just feel like, man, the world is so crazy and negative and filled with so much junk and garbage and bad news all the time. And I think we're feeling the weight of this steady diet of discouraging stuff. And we have to realize that, you know, a steady playlist of that kind of stuff starts affecting you after a while. CDC data shows that during the pandemic, anxiety tripled and depression quadrupled. It was already high, you guys, and it's, it's, it's out of control. I, I can't tell you the number of people I've heard say something like, you know, I had to take a step back from social media. I just couldn't, if, too much Facebook was not good for my soul. Or I, 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 I used to have talk radio on all the time, but, you know, I've stepped away from that so much, and it's really improved my peace of mind. You, you know, when it comes to our physical diet, we've got this, it's largely documented and figured out. We don't always do it, but we understand garbage in, garbage out. You are what you eat. We get that, right? You eat all this sugary, toxic, bad food. It's going to affect the way you feel, look, act, have energy, and all of that. And it's the same thing that is true in our minds with what we consume. In our mental playlist, it really, really matters. And once in a while, it just feels good, doesn't it, to have an opportunity to, to kind of get a soul detox, to get a brain breather where we can step away, get some 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 purifying, cleansing sense of, of removing some of the toxic residue and buildup from all the nasty film and just junk that, that just pulls us away from the things of God. We want more of the presence of Christ in our life. And all that he brings through his grace. This is what the Advent season invites us to, is to, is to say, come, Lord Jesus. Not just thank you for coming, but come now. And so we've got to give our brains a chance to breathe in the truth of Christ and the difference that he actually makes. So that's what we mean when we say Christmas playlist. Give ourselves a chance to get filled up again with good stuff.
Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 4, excuse me, um, is Apostle Paul, and he says, you know, it's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Summing it all up, he says, friends, I'd like you just, you do your best by filling your minds and meditating on things like things that are true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, and gracious. Think about the best. Put your mind on things like that, not the worst all the time. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. It's a beautiful reminder to think on these things. It's not saying put your head in the sand and ignore the pains of the world or the real problems around us. It's saying be careful what you put on your playlist. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on the earthly things. Lift your your eyes. The message says it this way, don't shuffle along with your eyes on the ground absorbed with all the things right in front of you. Once in a while, you got to look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ because that's where the action is. Seek things from his perspective. What's filling your mind and heart? It's just, I don't know if you're like me, I'm ready for some more stuff that instead of draining life is life-giving. Instead of just kind of off-color is pure and wholesome and good and, and, and instead of being dialed in so acutely so I'm up with the spirit of the times, I can just, maybe we just need to be filled with the spirit of God a little more. Instead of just the candy, the bread of life. So... Whatever's inside of us is going to come out, that's for sure. Jesus said that in Matthew 12. He said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So here's the deal. You're full of it. (laughs) You're full of something. The question is, what am I full of? Because whatever is in there is going to come out, and it's going to spill out of your mouth, and it's going to spill onto your family. It's going to spill onto your witness. It's going to spill onto the whole thing that God has called us to do. So we're going to... Started off today by getting an amazing Christmas playlist pulled together. Week by week, we'll pull out one of the oldie goldies and uh, we'll look at it and see where it points us in Scripture and in the process, we'll get a chance to be filled with more of Jesus. How's that sound? Let's, let's dive in. Um, hey, you know, along the way, I'm going to mention also, you've probably heard already, we have a, a kind of new thing we're trying this year, like an Advent podcast. It's a daily thing. We'll just send you a, a little, short little a recording and, and an opportunity to just kind of think together about some things that will fill our minds with the right stuff. So you can get that anywhere you get your podcasts as Advent Reflections, or there's a number on the screen here, and if you don't already have that, you can get, uh, text that word Advent to that number, and every day we'll text you a little bit there. Um, now, uh, we're going to dive in with the first song today. And um, the first song that we're going to talk about is O Little Town of Bethlehem, and you just got a chance to hear a beautiful rendition of that. Um, I got to be honest with you, this, I get weepy with this song. Um, so I'm not going to read the words to you till the end because I probably won't make it through because it's just, I, I no longer, you know, say sleep in heavenly peas with this song. I've actually thought about every word and every time I do it just means so much to me and I hope it has that same impact for you. I really do. Um, Phillips Brooks, he was a big man, um, say he was like 6'6", like almost 300 pounds, um, but he was known mostly as being a big preacher, a big, strong, uh, larger-than-life kind of guy, he graduated from Harvard, and then he was preaching at a big church in one of the most well-known churches, a dynamic, inspirational, well-known guy of his time, but his heart was empty, and his soul was hardening, and he could feel it. It happens. 
back when he was in his mid-20s, he got the appointment for this big church in Philadelphia, and he partnered with this high-powered buddy of his named Lewis Redner, and they just had a ball. Redner took over the Sunday school, which was a big deal in those days. That's how you grew a church. And he was also the organist. So they had a good music program, a Sunday school program, and he was a great preacher, and they put that thing together, and that church just took off. It exploded with growth, but it was wearing him out. He was tired. And when he's about at his end, the Civil War hit. And it drags on and on and on, and discouragement is everywhere. And um, it just feels like his blanket is over everybody of depression. People are showing up in church wearing black because they lost someone that week, you know a dad or a husband, a father. People were mourning loss all the time, and it wouldn't go away. It just kept dragging on and on, and nobody knew how long it was going to go. When the war finally ended, he and they all thought, you know, maybe we can finally kind of get our, get our joy back, get some vitality going around here. And, and then they had a horrible resurgence of bad news because Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And the pain intensified, and despair gripped everyone, turmoils everywhere. Philip Brooks wasn't the, pastor's pre- uh, wasn't the president's pastor, but um, he was such a prolific and well-known speaker. They asked him to do the funeral for Abraham Lincoln, which he did. And somehow he dug inside his nearly dead soul and found some important words. And after he was done, he was so burned out, he really struggled to get the spiritual flame lit inside of him again. Against all of the everything around him, the turmoil, the pain and the discouragement and the so when is this going to end kind of sense. He just felt so small, so little and weak and insignificant. And I, I, I when I read that story, I, I just think of folk like us right now and all that we've been through over the last couple of years and some of the losses and some of the feelings that we have and some of the winds is going to end and about the time you think it's over, something else hits. And you've got your own story of feeling kind of small against it all and empty. What he did is he asked his church for a sabbatical, and they said yes, and he went to the Holy Land. Took a little trip there to try to restore his soul. And he tells this story of how on Christmas Eve, he gets a horse, and he rides it um, throughout the day, and he's... He just has this amazing life-changing experience over in the Holy Land on this horse. He prayed, spent time with God, and then at dusk, when the stars were just coming out, he rode into the tiny village of Bethlehem, which in those days was probably not much different than it was in the days of the Bible. And uh, he thought, you know, here I am, just a few feet away from where Jesus came into, came to the earth, you know, and he could hear them singing in the church of the nativity, and they were singing these songs about the Savior of the world, and it started to really lift his spirits. Before dark, he rode out into the field where they say that's where the shepherds would have been and, and to see the angels and all. And he passed some actual shepherds right there. And he's like, wow, you know, this was this huge moment. And, and then he sat on a little hillside overlooking the flickering lights of the little town of Bethlehem that night. And that beautiful moment, he said, he just felt God filling his soul again. And it was out of that experience that he wrote. This song we now know as Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Seems like it's when we're in our worst, broken little moments that God seems to come through the best, doesn't it? You know that? He got back, and it was actually three years later when they needed something for the kids' program at the church. 
And uh, he reaches for the files and pulls out this old poem, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. He gives it to Redner, says, put it to music by tomorrow, and he can't come up with anything. He finally goes to bed, thinks he's failed, you know, and, and then this tune comes into his head, and he, keeps, he gets out of bed, writes it all down, and then he discovers the words, of, the, the words of the poem and the tune that God had given him that night fit perfectly, and so there it all came together, and in 1868, Christmas, Old Little Town of Bethlehem was performed for the first time, and then when Phillips Brooks died 25 years later, it was probably one of the best known uh, Chris, best love Christmas carols in the world. And it's a song for anyone who feels small and weak and broken, tired. Someone who wants to be filled with God again. A song about renewal that asks for God to reach down from heaven and touch us. Oh, a little town of Bethlehem. Um, the, the two things that everybody knew about Bethlehem in Jesus' day would be, number one, it's the town where King David was born, the great king, the greatest king of all, and it's the town where the Messiah would come. Everybody knew those two things, but um, no one really knew how all that was going to come about, um, but we'll get to that. The exact location... Um, had been foretold seven centuries before the time of Jesus. If you look in your Bible in Micah chapter 5, Micah 5, it's in the middle of your Bible, kind of go to the New Testament, go back to the left, seven books, there it is, Micah chapter 5. Micah's this prophet who's been assigned by God to deliver some very tough news to God's people. Um, the, the bad news um, is not easy to deliver, but he does with some urgency and some warning. Here it is. Starts out this way. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Mobilize. Marshal your troops. Get ready. There's something big to go down. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. Oh, no. Not our beloved Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. Your king's going to get knocked on the noggin. This is not a good sign. What is happening here is he's warning his fellow Hebrews now that... Because of their sin, the promised land is going to be invaded. Jerusalem itself is going to be laid siege. Even their king is going to be humiliated with a smack on the face. It's a wake-up call. It's a warning from God, as he often gives, when people kind of stop thinking of sinning as sin. When, when we lose our way and you accept, God says, you've begun to accept what is unacceptable to me, and this doesn't fly, and so he sends the prophet to warn them, to wake them up, and say, here's the consequences. Now, what's beautiful is he gets all of that out of the way in one verse. The very next verse, Micah has some good news. And the good news is you're not going to stay that way forever. It's like God whispered down in Micah's ear, hey, but also tell them someone special is coming. Tell them I'm going to send, and then this is the reference to the Messiah, the one that they looked forward to for centuries, who would kind of finally come to put things right, who would come and bring finally peace, that shalom for everyone. Verse 2, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, God says, one who will be ruler over all of Israel, 
whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Like, this is an old plan. I'm working it. And it's, it's, it's centuries in the making, but it will happen one day in my time, in my way. It says Bethlehem Ephrathah there because there was more than one Bethlehem, and that's the way of kind of getting the Google Maps pointer to the right one. It's the one there in Judah. It's the little one. And you remember Mary now um, is, gets conceived with child and is going to bear the God child, but she's over where? She's in Nazareth. How's this going to work out? Because the prophecy said Bethlehem. Well, God works his sovereignty and his providence in interesting ways, and he goes to Caesar Augustus and puts it on his head, apparently, or worked all things out. I don't know how this works, but in those days, Luke 2 says Caesar Augustus put out a decree that everybody had to go to their hometown to get taxed to go to your ancestral home. And so Joseph puts pregnant Mary on a donkey and off they go. Luke 2 tells it this way, after all going to their own town to register, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So that's the town he had to report to. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time for the, came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Here's a map of what that would have looked like in those days. Here's Nazareth up here, about 80 miles down, about 75 to Jerusalem. They probably stopped there and then went right on down to Bethlehem, even though it's down, the Bible says up, but they went down to Bethlehem. And I bet the whole way, they know exactly what's going down because they know their scriptures. They know they're carrying the Son of God and they know that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they're not surprised. Everyone else, when they get the news from Caesar Augustus, like, oh my gosh, we got to go to our hometown. They're like, yep, saw this coming. And off they go, 80 miles down. You might recall that after Jesus was born, King Herod got very, very nervous, right? Very upset and jealous and afraid because the wise men from the east showed up and said, hey, we hear there's a new king. Where's he at? And Herod doesn't like the language of new king. And he calls in his people and he says, what's this whole I hear about this Messiah, this Christ, this other king? What's that all about? Herod didn't know his Bible very well, but his people did. And they quote from him for him. Matthew says, Matthew chapter 2 now in the New Testament. They answer, well, in Bethlehem, in Judea, dummy. Yeah, they didn't say the dummy part, but you get it. Because don't you know... That's what the prophet wrote. And they quote the same verse we already read that had been around for 700 years. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people. Kind of combines some First Samuel there as well. And so that's when he was so jealous. Do you remember what Herod did? He ordered all of the babies in Bethlehem to be slaughtered infanticide but God tipped off Joseph and Mary and that's when they go become refugees in Egypt and then eventually they find their way back to Nazareth where Jesus grew up so that's Bethlehem let me let me today just can I just draw your attention to one thing maybe that'll just maybe stick with you Bethlehem was little 
Bethlehem was little. It was an insignificant little town. It was small. I'm saying this because I think I'm talking to people who want to know how to welcome Jesus, who want Jesus to be born in them. I think I'm talking to people who want more of Jesus, who want to get filled up with Jesus, who want to try Jesus, who want to be done with external religion and church stuff, but actually a relationship with Jesus. If that's you, you need to know that when he showed up the first time, he came to Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was little. Because it turns out that God always seems to be drawn to the little, to the weak, to the small, to the insignificant. Because God likes to use insignificant, small, weak things to show his power. And so it's no accident that the Savior of the world enters the planet through little podunk Bethlehem. Uh, it's a small little town, even still today in some ways, but, but it's, it was very small then. So um, Baltimore, I think, has about 600,000 people, but I heard about Port Tobacco Village, Maryland. Anyone ever been there? Port Tobacco Village? How many people? 13 in the census. You know, 13 people. That's a small town. That's Bethlehem. It's one of those little places with a four-way stop, a liquor store. That's about it. No, no hospital, probably no school. You go to the next town for that. How many of you grew up in a small town? Like, small town's you. Yeah, you did that. Uh-huh. Yep. My wife, Carla, is raising her hands there. Knows everybody in her, you know, can name all the people in her graduating class probably, right? If you, you're, you're in a small town when a traffic jam is if cows are coming across the highway, and you have to slow down and wait for them. Or that's a, that's a small town. Or, you know, when you give directions by landmarks, like you go down to the old Smith place and take a right. You don't use street names. Or when you, when you call someone in a small town and you, and you have a wrong number but you still talk for half an hour, that's a small town. Uh, I, I have to tell you, up in, up in Dorset, uh, Minnesota, it's a little tiny town right near our cabin. And um, I love that little town. We, but it's just really, you just sort of slow down for a couple hundred feet on the highway, and that's it. It's a couple restaurants. That's pretty much it, general store. But they have this little drawing every year in the general store. They have a mason jar in there, and you can write your name on it, put it in there, and they draw it out. And the winner is the mayor of the town for the year. And last year, it was like a four-year-old kid. So they had a picture up and an interview with him in the paper. And he's like, you know, he's like, as mayor, I'm going to make some changes around here. You know, suckers are going down to a nickel. And, you know, so that's a small town right there, right? Bethlehem was small like that, probably about 200 people, certainly less than 1,000. Um, if, if, you, if you lived back then, you would know, okay, the, what's in Bethlehem? Well, it's five miles outside Jerusalem. It's where shepherds, who are the lowest of the low, live. It's a bedroom community for shepherds. And, it, and if you were Micah about to give this pronunciation of the coming of the Messiah, or you heard it for the first time, you would probably think, if I was going to pick a place for the Messiah to come, Bethlehem is the last place I would pick. I mean, why not Jerusalem? It's only five miles away. It's awesome. Look what it's got there. Why not Capernaum? It's, got, it's a beach town, for crying out loud. Bethlehem is barely on the map. If you look in Joshua chapter 15, when they're dividing up all the land... And they're telling you, okay, so you get this and you get this. And they name all the little towns. They name over 100 towns that go into Judah. And they don't even mention Bethlehem. It didn't even make that list. It was so small and insignificant. That's how God works. God prophesies in verse 1 that big Jerusalem is going down and little Bethlehem is going up as the place 
that God will work through as a blessing. And that's still the way God works, as he always seems delighted to work through the small, the weak, the insignificant. Look at how Paul expressed this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here's what he says. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. He didn't call you because you're so big and smart and strong. Instead, God chose the things of the world that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. It's just the way God works. That's why I love what R.C. Sproul wrote about the tiny, the weak, the poor, and the insignificant. It was a little thing he wrote called Big King, Little King. Listen to this. Once upon a time in the land of Palestine, two kings were alive at the same time and at the same place. One of the kings was about 70 years old, and the other king was a tiny infant. The big king was evil, and the little king was pure. The big king was rich and powerful, and the little king was stricken with poverty. The big king lived in an opulent palace, and the little king lived in a stable. The big king's name was Herod. He was called the Great. But what he really wanted was to kill the little king. But in the end, it was the big king who died and now is remembered as a little king. And the little king grew up and became Jesus, the greatest. And he is now king of kings and lord of lords. This is God's way, isn't it? It's always God's way. It's a mystery. I think one of the reasons might be And when God works through little, small, weak, insignificant things, it always makes it crystal clear who gets the credit. (laughs) Right? Isn't that one reason? I mean, when you're 90 and 100 years old, like Abraham and Sarah, and then you have a baby who becomes the beginning of a nation that will bless the whole earth, no one can say, wow, you guys are amazing. You can only say, only God could do that. Right? Right? When when you got a little kid with a little lunch and he gives it to a big Jesus who then multiplies it and feeds 5,000 people with a bunch of baskets left over, you can't say, wow, that kid's amazing. You just say, only God, right? When you see Jesus starting to build his team and he could have gone into Jerusalem or he could have gone to the big synagogue and got the smart ones, the ones who got the top of their class, all the sharpest members of all that, but he doesn't. He goes over to the tiny beach town and he goes to the beach where all of the kids who got kicked out of school are and he says, you, follow me. And they're like, me? He's like, yes, you. And they do and they turn the world upside down and nobody could say, those guys are amazing. All they could say is they've been with Jesus and only God. And it makes me want to reflect on my life, and maybe you can reflect on yours. Like, are, 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 you doing, are you trying to make sure that everything happens, it's guaranteed because it's all coming out of your strength and you got it all buttoned down, or is there any room for faith in your life where God might have to show up for something to happen? He didn't come to Jerusalem. He came to Bethlehem. Is there anything happening in your life that someone would have to look and say, only God 
That kind of little act of patience that she keeps doing over and over again, only that must be God. That sort of way that they have made decisions about their parenting, that must be God. Little things that make a big impact. Is there anything in your life, the way you serve, the change in you from people who know you best, God uses all kinds of little things, little Bethlehems and little people in these kind of big ways. I know one thing. I bet those shepherds told their kids, hey, you know, right where we're watching our sheep here, this is where King David used to watch his sheep. I bet they told that story. And then maybe they told the story of how David was selected. Do you remember that story? It's in your Bible in in 1 Samuel 16, and it says that, you know, uh, David uh, was just this little, little boy, of a son of Jesse, but, but God had told the prophet Samuel, the next king of Israel is coming out of the family of Jesse. So he goes to Jesse's house, knocks on the door and says, I need to see your boys. He lines them all up from the biggest to the smallest, and there they are, impressive scholarship to Yale. This one over here is a homecoming king, you know, this one here, star of the football team, these big, studly, tall, handsome, smart dudes, and then take your pick. And so Samuel's waiting for a cue from the Lord and looks at the first one who's wise and experienced and old, and he says, that's not the one. He goes, the next one, not the one. He goes, the next one. He goes all the way down the list, doesn't he? Not a single one of them was the next king of Israel. Finally, Sammy's looking around like, you got any other sons? And Jesse's like, well, not really. Well, okay, one, he's, he's little, and he's a shepherd. Actually, he didn't use the word shepherd. He said he's tending the sheep because he couldn't bring himself to use the word shepherd. Well, why don't you go get him? So they go, they go get him, and they bring him in. And Samuel says that's the one because God had told him that. And little David became a great king. And David's little town became of great significance. And those insignificant shepherds became significant. Because that insignificant little girl with the baby in her belly showed up there one night and gave birth to an insignificant little baby who became the king of kings and lord of lords. And it turns out that's how all of us, small, weak people, find our significance. It's not by trying to be big, but by finding our real self in Jesus. Now, I have a story that I've been wanting to tell you. It, 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 it doesn't even fit that perfectly, but I just really want to tell it. So can I tell it to you? It's, it's that much fun. And I, and, I actually think, and I actually think some of you are going to tell this at, you know, at your homes here over the holidays. So it's, it's about the football game between the big animals and the small animals. Did you hear about this? It was a great game. It was really, really exciting. Um, but as you can imagine, the large animals were just slaughtering the small animals. It was like not even, not even close. They'd kick off, and the rhino would get the football, and he'd start running his way down the field. Nobody could stop him. He just went all the way to the end zone. Squirrels are hanging off his legs, and butterflies are pecking at his tusks, but nothing. Can't stop that guy at all. At halftime, it was 48 nothing. Big animals, right? Well, the second half looked like it was going to go pretty much the same way as the first half, but then something really strange happened. The small animals kicked off to the big animals, and the elephant got the ball and started to run out. He got about three yards, and bam, he's hit, and he's dropped right there on the spot after only five yards. 
On the next play, they hand off to the rhino, and he goes like two yards. Bam! He's hit immediately. Nothing. They try it with the lion. Bam! He's tackled for a loss. So they get panicked, and they're going to try to do a a big pass, and, and the gorilla gets the ball, drops back, but he gets sacked and then fumbles, and the ball is loose in the end zone. There's animals everywhere, and the ref is pulling the big animals and the little animals off, trying to get to the bottom of the pile, and there down at the bottom is a centipede on top of the football. Can you believe it? His teammates are like high-fiving him, touchdown little animals. They're like, that was amazing. Wow, how'd you do it? And then they said, wait a second, was that you that hit the elephant? And he goes, yeah, that was me. Goes, was that you that hit the rhino back? Yeah, that was me. Yeah. Was that you that tackled the lion and then the gorilla? Yeah, that, that was me. And they said, well, that's awesome. Wait a second, where were you in the first half? And he says, well, I was in the locker room getting my ankles taped. It took me a while. I told you you'd enjoy the story, but here, here, you know what? It is a silly, stupid little story, but you know what? I will, I'll use this word. It's true. Because in God's kingdom, in God's way of thinking, there is no such thing as a small player on God's team. In God's eyes, we're all kind of significant. And the smaller we are, the more room there is for God to flow. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead can be at work in our lives. And the smaller we are, the more power, there's more room for the power, you see? The bigger we are, sometimes the smaller the room is for the power. So if any of us thinks, well, I'm just nothing, I'm just going to go sit in the locker room and tape my ankles, those little things you bring that have a big impact in God's way of doing things, they don't get added into the game. And I think this is one of the ways that our enemy takes us out the most. I mean, he can, can, um, you know, get us to worship the devil and get us into wicked, evil, horrible sins, but, you know, he doesn't need to do any of that. If he can just get us thinking to ourselves, I'm just too small, I'm too young, I'm too old. I don't know enough. I'm too insignificant. I'm too much Bethlehem. I'm too discouraged. I'm too ordinary. I hope when you hear the words, O little town of Bethlehem, that word little will jump out to you. And you'll think to yourself, oh yeah, that insignificant little town, I guess it was a nothing little town, but somehow God chose it as a way to show up on the planet, as a reminder to all of us that God visits the little insignificant places and people always. Ordinary people are the ones that God chooses to do extraordinary things through. And if you think you can't be used by God, you just you say, God, can you use me? And then watch out. You think, well, my family's just too ordinary. You know, the situation's impossible or whatever. Just I dare you to ask God and then watch out. So I want to just close by reading the words to the song. And I feel like it's almost like a prayer, you know. We're going to put the words on the screen, and you can kind of follow the words to the song. And I'm going to add in a little bit just to help make it, maybe show you how I think about it anyway, and and then we'll make it our prayer, okay? Because we need more of Jesus. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, you're so insignificant and small, but I know God always shows up, and it reminds me that even when I feel insignificant, You will show up for me. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. He's talking about what seemed like an ordinary night. 
People were sleeping, stars are in the sky. Yet, in thy dark streets, I love that he says the streets were dark, not just because maybe it was night, but because we all live in a dark world with our own sin and our own darkness of the world, and we desperately need light. And he says, in your dark streets shineth on what seemed like an ordinary night, the everlasting, capital L, light. Not just the star that hovered where the shepherd said, oh, here's the place, but the light that John talks about when he says in John 1, 5 that Jesus was a light shining in darkness, or a few verses later he says it's the light that gives light to everyone. And in this light, the hopes and the fears of all the years, the prophets had said for centuries that all of our tears and fears and hopes will be met in the Messiah. And they're met right there in Bethlehem that night. Verse 2 takes us to the moment when the baby Jesus is born. And Mary and Joseph, are, I picture them holding their little baby and that's what's going on in the ground. But then he takes us up in his verse here to help us see what's happening at a cosmic level, right? For Christ is born of Mary and then gathered all above while mortals sleep, while, while people are zonked out in Bethlehem. They don't know that on a hill outside of town, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. And it's not just angels who are singing. He pictures it like all of creation is joining in this beautiful moment of rejoicing at the coming of the Creator. Oh, morning stars are joining in together to proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to all on earth. Now, verse 3 is one of my favorites because despite the loud chorus of angels, he reminds us that except for those shepherds who got quite a light show and a loud announcement, for everyone else, Jesus arrived quietly, out of sight, quite by God's design. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Isn't it weird that God doesn't force himself on anyone, but he comes gently and humbly and meekly. Not like a King Herod, but a humble, lowly king. You would think it would be a big announcement everyone would know, but he came down in a silent night, not like on a buffalo or anything, charging in, but just tiptoeing like a cat. No pomp or circumstances, just quietly. This is how God works today. That's why some people aren't believers today, because God hasn't forced himself on them. And so, the text says, this is the same way God imparts to human hearts today the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. It's not going to be announced on a big loudspeaker. But in this world of sin in which we need a Savior more than ever, he will come to us and he comes quietly. Like most of the people in Bethlehem back then, they missed it. God allows you to choose him, to say, fill me or not, because he comes quietly. You can ignore him and say that you don't need a savior, but this is the amazing next part, where meek souls will receive him still when we humble ourselves and go quietly before the Lord and say, yes, Lord Jesus, come, I need you. I invite you. I surrender to you. I want you. Please, Lord Jesus, come. I know you're not going to force yourself on me, but I'm coming to you now, humbly calling on you. Say, will you come and help me, love me, heal me, fix me? When we call on God with a meek, humble spirit like that, 
the dear Christ enters in every single time. Every time. Friends, just as surely as Jesus came quietly to Bethlehem, little Bethlehem long ago, he'll come if we will quiet our own souls and humble our own hearts today. Could it be that maybe some of us feel like Jesus is far and distant because we have not become meek and gotten quiet enough and humble enough to receive him? The final verse, I, hear, I don't hear a musty old carol, oh, little town of Beth. I, I just hear, when I hear this, the power of these words, just, it's a pleading, desperate prayer that becomes my prayer. Maybe it could be your pleading, desperate prayer as well. Oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Just as you descended back then, will you come to my broken heart? Will you... Will you come to my confusion? Will you descend to my discouragement? Will you come to my family? Will, will you not stay up in heaven because we need you down here? It is a mess, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We need you here. Our nation is a mess. Our schools are a mess. The internet is a mess. Politics is a mess. The tension and the divides and the darkness. My own heart is dark and clouded with everything. And I'm so full of disappointment and disgust some days. All of the crud and the anger and the hurt and the sin, O holy child of Bethlehem, will you come? Will you just come, cast out our sin, and enter in and be born in us today because I want to be born anew, born from on high. We hear the Christmas angels sing those glad tidings as they tell that we all need a Savior and that he is Christ the Lord. So come to us. Abide with us here and now, Lord Jesus our Lord, Emmanuel. Amen. God, we thank you for these good words. And we pray that you'll help us to get filled with more of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.